Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. A bowdlerized podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 154, Films of Fairy 2, Fairy Tales Are For Kids. And I can't say the word bowdler. They awoke a bowdler deep in the recesses of the earth, a demon See, of that's flame what, and It shadow. sounded like something like demonic. <laughs> like yeah. I, some kind of lore somewhere talks about bowdlers. Um, so we yeah. can jump into that real quick because this is this. It's going to be kind of a sub point. It's not really the focus of the episode, but I think it's fun because the the word bowdlerized comes from a guy named Thomas Bowdler, and uh, in the 1700s or I think early 1800s, um, Thomas Bowdler and his sister released the family Shakespeare where they took Shakespeare and they cleaned it up and they uh, took out things that they thought were inappropriate and they released it so that you can feel good about reading Shakespeare uh, with your kids. Um, And he also, I think the last thing he did was uh, he expurgated the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, So he got this reputation of like just ripping things up and cleaning them up and making them all nice and shiny and and presentable, uh, which is also a criticism of Disney and especially the way that Disney has adapted fairy tales over the years. And that's really what we're diving into today, which is uh, Disney. Yeah, it's less about um, I think it's it's a it's a thread that starts with innocent intentions and probably some good intentions, um, but led to the infantilization of both fairy tales and animation that's still something we yeah. we struggle with in american uh media culture less so in other countries but in america we still think cartoons are for kids and this is a big part of the reason why almost every other country's animation is like specifically not for kids yeah the cartoon saloon the perjopulouses of the world yeah, and then people like Miyazaki have to like niche out a little section of like hey can we have some animated kids movies please Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even Miyazaki's movies are fairly um, uh, for all ages, I'd say. Like they yeah. often center kids, but they're not only kids movies. They're, they dive into mature events and some really dark stuff happens in them, too. Oh, yeah. So anyway, when we're talking about fairy tales, which if you're just joining us, this is what the, we're doing a series on fairy tales. And so you have to talk about Disney, especially when you're talking about fairy tales on film. Disney is kind of they've not quite, but they got pretty close to like monopolizing that. They're genre. the elephant in the room. They are the elephant crushing in the room. everyone else. Not talking about uh, flying elephants. Um, but let's do a little bit of a deep dive. This is going to be a super um, kind of uh, overview of Disney, Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company. It all gets kind of muddied up. Um, so. Walt Disney, the man. I'm not going to go into his full background, but he started out his career doing uh, cartoon ads. Uh, he was a cartoonist and at a pretty early age, like in like 18 to 20, 21, he started um, doing cartoon animation and stuff like that. So uh, one of his first gigs was doing these cartoon ads uh, that were branded laughograms. And a lot of them were modernized fairy tales. So here we go. We're starting right off the bat with uh, with the fairy tale animations. Um, and he was kind of basing that idea on the model of other animations and animators at the time, specifically Paul Terry, the creator of Mighty Mouse, who had been doing a series of Aesop's fables. And so 
Disney was kind of just, you know, when you're starting out as an artist, really the best thing to do is kind of imitate other artists that you admire. So that's kind of what he was doing. Um, and then he eventually created a short silent film called Alice's Wonderland that was a mix of live action and cell animation. Uh, and then he kind of took that and New York at the time was kind of the, the hub of uh, cartoonism and animation and stuff like that because it could be done in studios that didn't have to be like L.A. was starting to become the Hollywood hub. But that's where all the the camera studios and live action studios were. And you don't really need that for animation necessarily. So they were still in New York where the films had started. Uh, but he moves to L.A. to join uh, his brother who had tuberculosis over there at the time. So he joined up with him. His brother ended up living for a while, I think. But uh, they try to get the short sold. They eventually do get it sold. And uh, it gets turned into a series of short comedies. So this at this point, they're basically making two reelers, maybe even one reelers. Uh, these animations were really short, punchy things that would play at the beginning of movies. We've talked about this before, where you would go to the movies and you would see a bunch of like little short films and some newsreels and stuff like that before your movie started. And it would just kind of stretch out the movie going experience. Uh, it was the uh, the old timey version of autoplay. Um, so eventually, Walt and Roy, his brother, started the Disney Brothers Studio in 1923. Uh, and that is why you're seeing Disney 100 everywhere, because that started 100 years ago this year. And then a few years later, that turned into the Walt, uh, Walt Disney Studios. And uh, Walt got tired of making the Alice films. They did like two different seasons of Alice shorts. Uh, I think, and wanted to do strictly animation because he was an animator. He wasn't a filmmaker per se. So he wanted to do just animated shorts. And so he created a character, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, and then about a year later, they replaced it with uh, Mortimer Mouse. Oh, just kidding. Mortimer Mouse got struck down and Mickey Mouse was created. Uh, <laughs> Disney spent the next several years uh, making animated shorts uh, things like the Silly Symphonies, the Mickey Mouse stuff that uh, became super popular. And in the process, they evolved the process and systems for doing animation. So uh, they added in color when color was starting to come about. They uh, they streamlined the process of animation by having their lead animators only create the main poses of each character and then having junior animators animate all the frames in between just so that they could go a little faster. Uh, so eventually, after doing this for a few years, Walt Disney decided that a feature film would be more profitable than the little shorts that they've been creating. And so he started developing Snow White, kind of going back to his roots, looking at the fairy tales. Uh, and that's the one that he picked to be the first feature film. And really, We'll talk about this a little bit, but his main interest in Snow White was this idea of having seven dwarf characters that would be great for comedy gags. Right. So that like the dwarves become his little slapstick uh, dummies that he can use just to put a bunch of comedy because that's what they were doing. They were just doing all of these Mickey Mouse uh, kind of comedy bits. So that's how you turn that into a film. Um, so a lot of people in the industry saw Walt Disney trying to make a, let's see, how long is Snow White? Uh, 90 Not minute very. ish. Yeah. But still 90 minutes is a big stretch from 
a 10 or 20 minute. Yeah. You'd uh, have to like lock a bunch of animators in a basement and force them to work overtime to get that done. Something like that. Uh, and you might even go over budget. You might even go three times over budget. The budget started out for Snow White. So a bunch of people in the industry saw this and they were like, Walt Disney's an idiot. He's going to bankrupt his studio. Um, and they weren't too far wrong because he ended up, his budget was $250,000. And the film ended up spending $1.5 million. And I think Walt Disney mortgaged his house. He had to take out a loan for $250,000 at the end of production. That's these price. That's the budget of the film at the original <laughs> originally. And he had to take out a loan for the full amount again uh, just to finish it. Um, and so, yeah, they uh, sunk a ton of money into it. But the gamble paid off and it was hugely successful. I think it ended up making six million. Uh, so big return and kicked off this whole new craze of animation, um, which I should say no one had done a cell animated feature length film before. Uh, so Snow White is the first one. And that's why people thought it was crazy. Couldn't be done, uh, at least not financially. Um, so it ends up being super popular. And then over the next several years, Disney creates several more films. This becomes known as at least by Disney. I realize a lot of these terms that people talk about Disney kind of came from Disney. So take that as you will. But they Snow White kicks off. War. Yeah, basically. Uh, they're the Wyatt Earp of uh, animation. <clears throat> so Snow they White. They're just selling something. This is very true. <laughs> Snow White kicks off the quote unquote golden age of animation. So in this time, uh, like we talked about last time on the show, Pinocchio comes out next um, and then they do a few others. Uh, Dumbo, Fantasia, I think, was in this time period. Um, and then the war happens, World War Two, and Disney gets caught up making propaganda films and stuff like that. And again, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes here. Like the Disney company is growing. It's finding a lot more ways to be profitable. That's not really the story of today, but you kind of, you know, we all see the fruits of that today everywhere yeah. you turn you can't the, avoid it oh man i'll tell you what the thread of see watching the disney machine tool itself to be more and more profitable from each of these movies is very evident right which is part of what this this whole conversation is going to be about not not solely but this this fil this episode does take a little bit of the um tone of one of our normal director episodes except we're looking at it from the lens of a creation studio and kind of a creation philosophy more than a single person's um, viewpoint, almost like we did with Cartoon Saloon. Uh, but, you know, just the Disney version of that. So then there was another there was a, a decline um, after Disney had been doing same old thing for a while in the 60s and 70s. Disney starts to go downhill. They have some unprofitable films. Uh, the Black Cauldron almost sinks them. And we actually talked about this whole period really specifically in episode 87. Uh, Disney doesn't die with Aaron. So if you want to know that whole story about what Disney was doing and why it wasn't working and then what they did to get back out of it, uh, you can go check out that episode. But long story short, Disney doesn't die. They make The Little Mermaid, which is hugely popular. So again, a return to fairy tales. Fairy tales seem to be the only thing that can keep Disney afloat. Uh, and then they create 
what is known now as the Disney Renaissance. So from The Little Mermaid in 1989 through about The Lion King in 1994, there's a string of hugely successful films. These include um, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, the, that era of um, Disney is, is really good for them. And then in the late 90s, Pixar comes along and Toy Story comes out in 94, 95, I think. Um, and so now the landscape of animation changes once again. And Disney tries to keep up and they have really mixed success mixing digital and uh, hand-drawn animation and stuff like that. So basically the way that Disney decides to stay in the animation race is to just straight up buy Pixar. <laughs> so now Pixar and Disney are working together, um, but acquiring Pixar is not just a move that adds technology to Disney's repertoire and gives them um, a huge leg up in the 3D animation game, but it also brings talent uh, to them, like storytelling talent that kind of reinvigorates some of their storytelling, um, specifically uh, like John Lasseter, uh, comes in and starts helming both Pixar projects and Disney projects. Um, and this is where you start to see like Disney and Pixar films start looking really similar um, because the the teams merged. And so there's a lot of overlap there. Ironically, I realized this. Uh, I just realized this when I was going through all this stuff. But a lot of the Pixar guys had originally been hired at Disney and then were fired for reasons like trying to push computer animation and stuff like that. Like John Lasseter had worked for Disney and been fired. Um, who was the other one? Brad Bird had worked for Disney and been fired. And then, you know, as happens, they go and do really, really good stuff at Pixar. And then Disney's like, oh, hey, wait, wait, wait. Can you come, come back and help us? So that happens. Uh, and then so they uh, Disney acquires Pixar in 2006. Um, and then. They have another string of successful films uh, with things like uh, Frozen and Tangled. Tangled first and then Tangled uh, gets enough clout to get Frozen made. Frozen has its own whole history of production, which we'll get into later. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of that's that's kind of the pre-modern Disney where they're doing Tangled. They're doing Frozen. Um, they're doing stuff like that in terms of fairy tale films. And of course, they always have a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, but at this point, I'm just going to kind of leave off because this is the point where I get really frustrated with Disney and call it the modern. The modern era of Disney is like Disney's regurgitation, where they just take everything that they've already done and they chew it up and spit it back out and uh, want you to pay for it. Uh, what if so we before, just kept, kept retreading. What if we just keep kept doing the same thing and we just squeeze that rag as f much as we can until we have squeezed not only all the life out of it but every last penny out of it um so the other thing that i want to talk about before we get into our films is uh when we're talking about our fairy tales we're talking about the elements of fairy tales i think disney is a really good place to talk about the idea from uh tolkien's on fairy stories tolkien's um four major elements of fairy tales uh, is the the consolation or the eucatastrophe as we described it last time the good the good return so catastrophe being the turning upside down a eucatastrophe being basically a turning back right side up um, and that's part of this element of like creating 
kid-friendly fairy tales, which I don't think that it always has to be kid-friendly because it almost it almost necessitates elements that are <laughs> very fairy tales from like a historical standpoint tend to be kind harmful um intentionally yeah. so it is interesting right. that the inversion became kid friendly so yeah but when we're talking about the the yukatashi this is like the happy ending which fairy tales often have that happy ending but there's something we're going to talk about and we're going to be looking at with each of these films which is you have to be you have to see the world as not right before you can have the relief of seeing everything put back in its right place. And so there's kind of this balance you have to tread of like, you have to show a lot of darkness first to amplify that relief of the happy ending at the end. And if you don't, so basically the darker you go, the, the bigger that relief is at the end. So we're going to see ways that Disney kind of um, will play with those two dynamics throughout uh throughout their run and so uh we tried to pick three fairy tales from three of the of the highest points of disney's uh success and so we can see kind of the evolution of how disney thinks about fairy tales which ultimately becomes kind of a look at how america looks at fairy tales uh for reasons we already stated about disney's monopolizing of the genre um and so this it'll be really interesting to see the ways that 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 changes and the you know both from a story standpoint and from a technological standpoint but with all that being said what are the films that we're talking about today alex well we're covering quite the span of time about 80 years or so we're going to start off with snow white and the seven dwarfs from 1937 directed by William Cottrell, David Hand and Wilford Jackson written by Ted Sears and more people um based writing on, of animated films is a sticky subject but we'll get into that a little bit later <laughs> yeah uh based on snow white by the brothers Grimm, starring adriana casalotti lucilla verna uh roy atwill and pinto colvig a cinematography by various people it's animation doesn't subject. always have a cinematographer but people kind of just draw it you know uh, music by Frank Churchill, uh, Leigh Harline, Harleen, and Paul Smith. Then we'll be talking about Beauty and the Beast from 1991, directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, written by Linda Wolverton, based on Beauty and the Beast by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, and partially by partially the Jean Cocteau film. Stay tuned; we might be covering that in the future, uh, which is the most popular version, but abbreviated from the original story by Gabriel Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, uh, which in turn is kind of a retelling of Cupid and Psyche. Um, also, I will point out that some of you may be familiar with the loose concepts of Beauty and the Beast from that one. Um, anecdotal tale in The Witcher, starring Paige <laughs> O'Hara, Robbie Benson, Richard White, Jerry Orbach, and David Ogden Steers. I don't know which one of them is Gaston, but um, that might be the most entertaining part of the whole film. Uh, <laughs> cinematography by Various and music by Alan Minken. Uh, Frozen, and finally, Frozen from 2013, directed by Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, written by Jennifer Lee, inspired by The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen, Very starring loosely. Kristen Bell, 
Indina uh, Menzel, Jonathan Groff, Josh Gad is the most annoying snowman of all time, and Santino Fontana. Cinematography by Mohit uh, Kalyanpur. At this point, we actually had full-on cinematographers advising... Um, Mm-hmm. advising animation, which makes sense because in the 3D animated space, you actually use um, right, lights virtual like you do on a real yeah. set. Um, music by Christoph Beck, uh, Robert Lopez, and Kristen and uh, Kristen Anderson Lopez. Do you remember the, uh, the whole Oscars thing where uh, John Travolta couldn't say Idina Menzel's name, and so he, he presents the award to Adela Dazim. <laughs> Just wanted to bring that back up because that's just like the biggest like name reading flub in history, probably. Well, at least the um, at least he got the right person, even if he said her name wrong. and didn't just give the award to a random nominee nominee. Oh, gosh. Um, All right. Well, let's jump into these films. Jason, set us up with the first feature length animated film. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. Once upon a time, there was a powerful queen with a magic mirror that would tell her anything that she wanted to know. Every day she would ask who was the most beautiful person in the kingdom, and one day the answer was not herself, but rather her stepdaughter, Snow White. The queen ordered a huntsman to kill Snow White in the woods, but he had a change of heart when he saw the innocence of Snow White and told her to run away. After making her way through unknown woods, she finds a small cottage inhabited by seven dwarves. They take her in and provide her shelter while she helps them maintain their home and their manners. But when the evil queen finds out that Snow White is still alive, she has a few more magical tricks up her sleeve and decides to take matters into her own hands. And note, Alex, that the word dwarf is spelled with an F. Do you know why that's interesting? Uh, because uh, from a grammatical standpoint, the plural of dwarf should be spelled with a V-E-S instead of an F? Not necessarily, because technically before Tolkien, it was spelled with an F. But Tolkien was very insistent on spelling it with a V-E, and he had to like hound his editors to not change it to fs and of course snow white comes out maybe 10 years before the not not quite but almost 10 years before the lord of the rings is actually published um i guess a little less than that i don't remember when the hobbit is published uh but anyway so now dwarves is always with a ves in my head and so when i see this title it throws me off anyway aside so First of all, I want to kind of talk through the original fairy tale a little bit. And of course, this is from the Brothers Grimm. Those tales are pretty compact, so there's not a ton of like they get the heart of the fairy tale in the in the story. But there are some interesting things to uh, bring up that might have some uh, implications on the story. So, for example, uh, Snow White's mother, the the original queen, uh, finds out she's she's barren and then one day she's sewing or something outside and she pricks her finger and a drop of blood falls on the white snow and then she knows i'm gonna have a daughter and she's gonna be as white as snow and she'll have lips as red as blood and all this stuff um and so then but then she dies i don't remember if she dies in in childbirth and there's actually a version where the evil queen is the biological queen and she has a change of change of heart later on uh but then she dies and the king marries a new uh 
a new queen who has this magic mirror and she asks it every day, who's the fairest in the land? Um, and in the story, when Snow White turns seven is when the answer changes from the you are, O queen, to Snow White is the fairest. Um, so that's a very, very early age for this to be going on. Um, and then... Yeah, it's a wee bit creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then the most of the rest is the same. Of course, in the story, there's just seven dwarves. It does. There's no characterizations and stuff like that. That was all added by Disney to make the The characterization is that there's seven of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, what what is it with dwarves and peer and peering in large numbers? They they flock. They flock. <laughs> they do. A flock of dwarves. <laughs> Elves appear alone and dwarves they flock. Yeah. That's um, what makes Gimli so interesting is that he's on his own. He's yep, Although technically he left and one he, flock to join he another. He joins a different flock. Yep. That's the exactly. only reason why he he stays by um, Legolas's side the whole time and becomes best friends with him is because he's uncomfortable he can't being alone. Bear to be alone, we might be onto something there. Um, and then the last thing to note is that the the evil queen comes and at first she tempts Snow White and she tries to uh, to kill her with a poison comb that she puts in her hair. And then the dwarves come back and they find it and they take the comb out. And she's okay. And then she comes back a second time with like a corset that she tightens too tight until she starts to suffocate. And then the dwarves come back and they save her. And then the last thing that she gives her is an apple. Um, and so that's, that's just kind of interesting from a thematic standpoint that the things that the queen uses to lure Snow White are these like items of beauty and beautification, which is interesting because Snow White is already the most beautiful in the land. Although she doesn't know that, like she hasn't been told that cause she's not looking in the magic mirror. Yeah. She doesn't uh, have pretty girl syndrome. Yeah, but it's like the queen is trying to start that. It's like she's trying to, like, if she adds vanity onto her beauty, then it will diminish her beauty uh, kind of a thing. So that's the interesting elements of the story. But again, Disney is just kind of taking the story and wanting to use it as a vehicle to illustrate oh, animation. Yeah. So no, this no, is no, not yeah. a film that's, like, heavily thematic. Although I will say, although, yeah, the point of all that is that the original story is kind of really heavily thematic. So even down to the point of the reason I bring up the original queen is that, you know, there's this element of the blood indicating that she's going to have a child, which blood indicates fertility. So there's typically there's you would a, think the lack of blood would indicate you have you would be about to have a child. But sure, we'll go with this. Well, right. But if you're barren, then then the. Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't think about that. If she was barren and then. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of these really subtle things that kind of go into fairy tales in general that like because this is basically a Bildungsroman, right? This is a coming of age story for Snow White you as she comes. On. Yeah. As she comes into her own as a woman, as you know, and again, this is this is a, another thing that, you know, we're going to see the trajectory of Disney move away from. But this is uh, a very kind of traditional look at uh, femininity and like coming into her own as a caretaker of herself and of others and, um, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of those things that are kind of baked into the story. Not all of them are fleshed out here, but that's not really the point of this film. I just wanted to bring it up. This is a well lot of those things. Disney's girl boss era. <laughs> yeah. Which we're going to, we're going to get right up to the edge of that. But a lot of those things go into fairy tales. And so they're there under the surface yeah. anyway. Yeah, this this as a movie, 
like you were saying, it, it, they kind of use the presentation as like a loose structure and it kind of just feels like an excuse to, to animate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the focus on the animation is either on, seems to either be on the animals or the oh, yeah, uh, I forgot the how long that animal sequence is when she first finds yeah, the some cottage. Of, some of the sequences really drag and that's when you start to realize, oh, this isn't like a, a single structured narrative. A narrative kind of happens, mm-hmm. but it's more about having a sequence of animated shorts. This is four symphi- silly symphonies strung together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can you can tell too because the... Um, well, at least the original human form of the queen and the human form of Snow White are both, if not completely rotoscoped, I know they filmed like reference and they look near rotoscoped. Um, yeah, I don't remember if they had started like they had doing actual that actresses act out those scenes yeah. and use that as reference for it. And you can tell too that like, they're slightly cartoonized, but they're not nearly as cartoonized as the animals or the dwarves or the witch version of the queen. Um, and, and that's also where a lot humans, of the focus in terms of like animated gags and fun right. and screen time seems to be. Most right. of the screen time for Snow White herself is for when she can sing, which in 1937, um, musicals and the concept of music on screen or sound on screen was still relatively novel and a big selling point. So that oh, yeah. makes sense as well. Yeah. And, and another element to that too is that humans are really hard to animate because you're always fighting the uncanny valley, especially when you're doing something really new. So even like Toy Story was like really shied away from the human characters because the human characters are kind of scary. Uh, like Andy oh, doesn't look great in the, in the first, first film. Or two. Um, so that's why and computer animation is really good at creating like very polished like materials so making toys that are all plastic was super easy to believe from a computer generated film um and here actually disney had actually made a short film just before snow white that uh almost made them reconsider because they did not do a good job of of animating a a female character and so they weren't sure if they're gonna be able to make a whole movie about a female character or two female characters um so again, and even the dwarves, like they're they're more exaggerated. So you're not really fighting uh, the uncanny valley because they're just kind of like silly shapes and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's part of this is right. They they were so focused on the gags that at some point Disney was going around handing out five dollar bills to any animator who could come up with a with a funny gag. So things like all their nose popping up over the edge of the bed when they first find uh, Snow White. Mm-hmm. Is from that. And then eventually they realized, oh, wait, we we still have to tell a story here. So they had to dial it back. And there were fully animated scenes that they just left on the cutting room floor just because it was getting too silly. Um, So they did kind of realize that they had to find that balance, but it it was not the, the primary focus. Actually, they were so focused on these dwarves. There's this whole story about um how at some point whoever was writing it, because there's a whole writing team, right? And this is something we'll talk about with the next film, but in the beginning of animation, animated films weren't really written. They were just storyboarded. So there would be a team of animators in a room and they would start sketching and they would sketch motions and they would sketch scenes and stuff like that. And then a film would kind of come out of that. Uh, And they didn't really focus on getting screenwriters until later. 
Uh, oh, we talked about how with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, something like that happened, right? Like yeah. they had to, they remade the movie multiple times in, um, in storyboards and rewrote it in storyboards before they even got to production. Right. Um, storyboarding so that's just why seems it's, to be a key part of the writing process as it evolved. Yeah, because you have to be able to see it and envision it and that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but at some point, the writers' room came up with this list of potential names for the uh, for the dwarves, and uh, they're pretty funny. I'm just gonna run through them real quick. There are 50, 50 potential names. Some of them they actually, uh, I think they literally just went through and like process of elimination scratched out a bunch of them. Uh, Use Chat but, GPT to just generate dwarf names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in alphabetical order, they are awful, bashful, oh god, big o, big o ego, biggie. Biggie Wiggy, Blabby, Busy, Chesty, interesting, Crabby, Cranky, Daffy, Dippy, Dirty, Dizzy, Doleful, Dumpy, Flabby, Gabby, Gaspy, Gloomy, Goopy. What is Goopy? Sneezy, I, I guess. Grateful, Grumpy, Happy, Helpful, Hoppy, Hotsy, I don't want to know. Hungry, Jaunty, Jumpy, Lazy, Nerdsy, like literal neurosis spelled. Uh, nifty, puffy, sappy, scratchy, shifty, silly, sleepy, snappy, sneezy, sneezy, wheezy, snoopy, soulful, strutty, tearful, thrifty, weepy, wistful, and woeful. Um, and I, I also saw that there was like a deafy at some point. So they, uh, <laughs> they spent a lot of time thinking about these dwarves. Oh yeah. I mean, they seem to be the main point of the movie. Like you were saying, is to have these seven charming dwarfs on screen that are goofily animated and yeah. uh, just kind of roll with that. Kind of present as many as many animation stylings, shorts, and gags that way as possible and then have Snow White in for music and then Evil Queen is basically doing all the plot work on her own. Yeah, right. Yeah, everyone else just kind of reacts to what she does. And then... <laughs> The ending of the movie is just so rushed. Yeah. It like it like all the plot happens in the first five minutes and the last ten minutes. And then the the interceding interlude is just frolics. Um, just frolics. Yep. That's a good word for it. Literal frolics. Um Yeah, and so yeah, the queen shows up and then she has her scene of like doing her evil witch's brew and stuff. Uh, which is kind of fun. And even like the silly symphonies and stuff, they would have those Halloween episodes. Like you've seen those animations of the skeletons dancing around and doing whatever. And so I feel like even the witches scenes are kind of like a silly symphony of evil. Um, although of course they're, they're uh, a little less boppy and she has like the skull with the apple. Um, and I really think it's interesting that when she comes to give the apple to Snow White, the, the thing that, gets Snow White to eat it is that she says it's a wishing apple, right? It's this is the thing that will make all your dreams come true. And she had like seen the prince. And so she already had this this little like. Uh, what do you call it? Like her Juliet balcony moment. Um, yeah, they'd been introduced to each other. So she's been thinking about the prince this whole time and now she's been exiled and she's like, how am I going to get to the prince? And so she takes the apple to make a wish of having her prince. And you know what I realized, Alex? From Snow White's point of view, that apple was a freaking wishing apple because she eats it and then she wakes up in the arms of the prince that she was wishing for. I guess it kind of works out well for Snow White in the end, doesn't it? Snow White has no clue 
what went on. She just knows that the that the the creepy old lady gave her an apple that made all her dreams come true. I think that's hilarious. But yeah, so we have like in terms of our you catastrophe, right? We have uh, Snow White is seemingly dead. So for the audience, for the dwarves, we're we're all sad because Snow White. Uh, we spent all this time like getting to know her, uh, you know, getting to love the way that she cares about the dwarves. And she's, you know, just so nice and innocent. Um, well, to be more specific, we spent about three musical numbers doing it. We spent a few musical numbers with her. Yeah. Uh, but we see the dwarves warm up to her, even if she's not on screen. The dwarves are all kind of like they're really skeptical at first. And then they they warm up even grumpy, even grumpy warms up to her. And then we have the classic, the Prince Charming comes in with the true love's kiss, uh, which is actually interesting because in the original story, it's like the prince comes, he he stumbles upon her glass coffin in the woods, and then he tells the dwarves like, hey, I'm going to take her to a castle. She belongs in a castle because she's too beautiful to just be hidden away in the woods. Um, and the dwarves realize that, you know, he loves her or whatever, so they let him take her. And then as they're walking away, one of the guys carrying the coffin trips and then like she bumps and part the apple like gets dislodged from her throat and she spits it out. And uh, then she wakes up. Um, so it's not even the true love's kiss that this film basically starts. The whole true love's kiss thing is not even from the story. It's just a thing Disney made up just to make it more. It's um, very 1930s Hollywood. It's yeah. like, oh, you have to have a B plot romance. It's not a story unless it has a B plot romance. It's like the uh, it's like all the sarcastic bits of um, singing in the rain. I love you. I love you. I love you. Mm-hmm, exactly. That's the other thing. So I love that Disney makes this as just a what if like what if we were just going to make a, a feature length film of animation? Like, I don't know if we can do it, but we've got some funny stuff here. We've got some romance like the guys are going to think it's funny the girls are gonna love it all my colleagues are gonna think it's amazingly animated and then he just like this just ends up becoming their thing right so he didn't set out to be the fairy tale guy but is like well it works we made a bunch of money on it so let's do it and now disney is like fairy tales in the mind of so many people yeah yep yep yep, yep. I, I honestly you know what i find Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and a lot of other really early Disney animation to be very, very charming. Um, it still feels like it's figuring itself out. It's not super formulaic, which I think is the thing that um, I've maybe come to associate with a lot of Disney products. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know why, but whenever it's a Disney thing, I have to refer to it as a product and more, <laughs> more often than I refer to it as a movie. I mean, everyone who makes a movie is... Well, not everyone who makes a movie. Any big company that's making a movie is ostensibly doing it to make money. Um, But with Disney, it really does feel like they're selling. Um, And I totally understand why, but the the productification of it, uh, which hasn't really occurred in 1937 because they're just getting started um, and they're still figuring it out, uh, does seem to I don't know wear on me. So it's charming to go back and see this where they're they're figuring it out. They're playing around mm-hmm. with the animation. There's yeah, different they still types care of about animation. The animation. Yeah. yeah, there's like there's something that's more, like there's two levels of realism in the animation here. There's wherever the dwarfs and the animals are at, and then there's wherever Snow White and the 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 evil queen are at mm-hmm. um, are at you know two different levels of realism uh, in terms of their animation style. 
is is very charming. And then just to see the animators just play around in every every scene, yeah. they're clearly having fun doing what they're doing. Well, or at least um, be, being creative. Even um, that little like that little story of the five dollar incentive to come up with gags is kind of a charming thing. Like you can see a bunch of guys who like are good at their craft. They know what they're doing, and they're just like. They're just like gambling on who can come up with the best, right? funniest thing, right? That just feels like a very fun kind of environment. And $5 is like a week's worth of groceries in 1937. Right. That's not nothing. So that's, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good bet for, uh, for coming up with, with gags for a movie. The, the all hand, I, one, of th- one thing that I always do enjoy about animated movies is how they feel more collaborative in the end result than other movies do just because it takes so much decision making at every single level to make it yeah. that it can't be it can't really be homogenized from the uh from the top down so uh, everybody gets more of a say in the final product i feel like than in live action and i always thought that was not necessarily something that makes it better or worse but something that makes it very unique and mm-hmm. it's nice to see an aspect of that here in snow white um, it makes it a very interesting watch. And while it is very weird, considering we are very used to very structured animated movies uh, in the future, ones that are basically the same as live action, except for the fact that they're animated, um, it it's fun to see them see a hit part of history and them figuring that out. Now, how do we do large scale animation to fill up 90 minutes of screen time? Yeah, right. Um, and make it, you know, at least somewhat cohesive because I, I, I joke that it's four silly symphonies all strung together, but it's not really episodic. Like we've seen episodic films like that, but it's still kind of it still holds together. There's just several different. Yeah, they just know, like you're saying really hard from the plot for, yeah, <laughs> for a while. For a it's all time. contiguous. It all connects. It's just um, I guess meandering might be the word. Yeah, in terms of like its it. focus. But I mean. The middle part of the story is meandering. She's lost in the woods and, you know, she's just spending her days with these uh, these dudes, which also on a on another psychological note, I was listening to a podcast where they were kind of diving psychologically into the story. But I mean, she she goes, you know, as as a coming of age story, she goes out into the world and then she encounters these these seven men who are not fit mates for her, you know. And they also all represent undesirable characteristics of men. And she has to learn how to live with all the undesirable characteristics of men before she's like ready to be married herself. There's it's such an interesting story and like the way that it's archetypalized um, and all the elements that go into it. I also love that the irony of the fact that the queen, who's so vain and obsessed with her appearance, uh, and her beauty and wanting to be the most beautiful in the land turns herself into an ugly hag to uh, kill Snow White and then ends up being an ugly hag uh, for the rest of her life because she dies by falling off a cliff. I mean, and it had, to, kind of it had to end somehow, right? <laughs> I know, it's kind of fitting. Well, yeah, in the original story, she ends up going to the wedding of Snow White and the prince, uh, not knowing because the prince is the prince of a dis- of a neighboring kingdom and so she mm-hmm. asked the she asked the mirror, thinking the Snow White is dead, who's the fairest of them all? And he says, "Oh, the new queen in the in the castle, a town over, 
is the fairest of them all. She's like, what? And so she storms over there and then she sees Snow White and Snow White tells them all what happened. And then they force her to dance in uh, burning iron shoes until she dies. Oh, that sounds medieval. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so that's going back to the idea of bowdlerism. Like uh, yeah, so they cut that out, um, which, you know, frankly, is understandable. Mm hmm. Although, to be honest, that would make for some sick animation. It would be, be pretty heavy metal. But all right. Anything else on Snow White? Uh, not really. No. All right. Well, let's take it to the Renaissance. Jason set up Beauty and the Beast from 1991. Beauty and the Beast from 1991. After her father is lost in the woods on his way to sell a new invention and becomes captured in the castle of a cursed prince in the form of a beast, Belle agrees to take her father's place as captive in exchange for his freedom. In the castle, Belle is waited on by various enchanted servants in the forms of ordinary items such as a candlestick, a clock, and a teapot. In addition to making Belle feel at home, these servants must also help the beast control his anger and play matchmaker between the two so that the beast's curse can be lifted by true love. But in the meantime, Belle's father has alerted the villagers to the presence of the beast and inspired Belle's would-be suitor, Gaston, to eliminate the competition. Uh, before we dive into this too far, I do want to ask you, Jonathan, we have a Disney Renaissance episode, don't we? Well, that's what I was saying at the top. Um, we did the episode with Aaron that was, it was basically the the fall and rise of Disney in that 60s and 70s era because we talked about the Black Cauldron. Um, and then I think we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit because they made that as like a live action animation mix. Uh, and then they made Little Mermaid, which is what started the Disney Renaissance and and brought them back on top. And so this is... Um, the ne- I think the next film after The Little Mermaid was Beauty and the Beast. Um, and so and then that just kind of kept kept their high because Beauty and the Beast was nominated for best film before there was a best animated film. Um, and so it it kind of just exploded and, and kept things going. Yep, that was um, man, I'm trying to think there's not a name for it. But there's this one little mini era of Disney animation that was like Treasure Planet, The Lost City of Atlantis, and Iron Giant. That's right after the Renaissance. That's like Disney competing with computer animation. Yeah. I really, really, really love that era. That was was a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. It felt like they were branching out from the fairy tales. Right. So those weren't the most successful films. Um, yeah. But they were some of the most unique. Um, yeah. And I agree with you because I love like the look of Treasure Planet is so, so unique um, yeah. because there are 3D objects in it, but it's still pretty much a 2D animated film. Um, and so, yeah, that that comes out in the later 90s. Uh, but yeah, those that is a really interesting so yeah, that's just to kind of map this whole, this is Beauty and the Beast comes out right before that era of the Treasure Planets and the Atlantises and right after the like Black Cauldron and the weird stuff that didn't do very well. Because it seems like whenever Disney branches out from fairy tales, they don't do yeah. Um Man, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just, I like unique stuff. I, I can't, I know there's lots of people out there who can like, if something's like commercially popular and it, it just they just keep making it like 
I don't know, Marvel's a good example. They'll, yeah. They would just love to enjoy it over and over, but I just get bored. Like, I don't know. I need to try, I need something fresh and unique every once in a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's where I sit on it. But yeah. Anyway, Beauty and the Beast, that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, Beauty yeah. and the Beast's animation style is so much more polished. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know it's like... 50 years, 50 plus, 54 years ahead of, of um, Snow White, but it's such a leap to watch those two back to back. Oh, yeah. um, it is so, so, so different. Um, it's also just a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. Um, it's it's like I actually think, a story now. <laughs> yeah, right? It actually is a story. Um, I kind of... I don't know why, but watching it and seeing Belle, she's a good character, but she kind of has like a little bit of the I'm not like other girls thing going on. Um, or she's like, I don't like to be pretty. I like to read books and that makes me different. Uh, well, that's what the whole which, village tells her in the first song. Like, she's weird. She yeah, likes books. Right? She doesn't like to be pretty. And then right? like the the three harlots or whatever that follow everyone around are like what I don't is know her harlots. I know, but you know, they're kind of animated that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found I found her charming, but also like I watching it, I don't know why, but it's probably just because it came out when we were before we were born, but in, in a time where every kid our age watched it, um, consumed this media repeatedly probably mm-hmm. uh where i just saw notes Especially of personalities that i'm familiar with and being like oh okay i see where some of the influence is coming from um but also i did want to point out that this one really does double down and focus on the music and i think you might have mentioned this already but it, that's a big part of the disney renaissance in particular yeah. um is like really focusing on the musical aspect which one pairs well with the with uh charming animation gags and stuff but just like the percentage of screen time that's singing compared to Snow White is wild. Yeah. And I think that they've kind of lost some of that, which we'll get into when we talk about Frozen. Um, but like Beauty and the Beast, yeah, it does a really good job with that. So Alan Menken is kind of the name when it comes to the Disney Renaissance music. So he he did a lot of that composing and that songwriting and stuff like that. Um and Beauty and the Beast has some of the most classic uh, songs from that time. And and the music feels cohesive. It carries the story. So, yeah, I think we talked about this when we talked about The Little Mermaid. But one of the main things from the Renaissance that come out, and especially from Little Mermaid, is that the I Want song, right? In Little Mermaid, it's the part of your world. I want to be on land. I want to be, you know, different than what I am or whatever. And here we have is really like the first song out of the gate, which is uh, Bell's. Um, and actually, the song really confused me this this watch through because, again, I'm I'm pretty familiar with it. But like now I'm watching it and analyzing the story. And Bell's whole thing is I want more than this provincial life. Like that's her whole refrain throughout that first song. So then I'm thinking, is she just like a discontented <laughs> like she's she has a good life with her dad, but she doesn't like that. She's like in this small town. She doesn't necessarily say that she wants to be rich or royal or anything, but she seems to think that uh, provincial country life is a, a non undesirable life for her. She she's very much a stand in for the um, young uh, American girl of the late tw- 20th century 
who's into books, into storytelling, and wants to move to a big town like New York City or something. I can like see that. that. Yeah. And it's kind of a quick quixotism too, where she's like, because she reads all these fairy tale books and she wants to find a prince charming or whatever. And because she keeps going back to this one book in that song and she's like, here's the prince, but she doesn't know that he's the prince until later, which obviously is kind of a parallel to what will end up being her own story. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of an interesting thing. And then you think about more of Belle's character where like she's captured by this giant monster and he tells her, you know, don't go in the West Wing. And then she just does but She's it. a like, rebel. It's, it's kind she, of a, a garden, like poison apple kind of thing. But it's, it's like, she just straight up doesn't even think about it. She's like, oh yeah, I'll just do it. Now, what, what's the worst that could happen in the castle of a giant monster? Disney has clearly moved away from the meandering plot era when that happened. It was yeah. very much like Belle w- walked up to the West Wing and was like, I got to move this plot forward. We got I'm going some story in here. to do. We don't got time. We spent, we've already spent 30 minutes on Gaston eating eggs in a song. <laughs> I got to go in here. I forgot that Gaston like tries to like kidnap her into marrying him right up yeah. like, in the first five minutes. Yeah. I mean, Gaston is super duper duper evil. Uh, but man, if he's not the most entertaining part of the whole movie. <laughs> so yeah, here's another thing that I was, I was thinking is when you think about it, Gaston and the beast are foils of each other, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's the point. Yeah, I don't one, know. I know. One is a beast on the outside and the other is a beauty on the outside with a beast on the inside. Yeah. Although they're they're both like large and imposing figures. But the the interesting thing about the beast character is at the very beginning we get the little fairy tale opening, right? And so the the and they say he's 17 and he's having this party and this ugly old lady comes to the comes to the front door and like I don't remember she she asks him for oh something. My gosh. Yeah. And then he like, he's like, no, get away from me. You're so ugly. And then she turns into a beautiful woman and curses him. And so like his whole thing is that he's cursed because he's so vain that he doesn't think he's worthy of yeah. this, of, of bestowing. I, I just want to also this throw this out here. He was 17. Which um, is just how 17 year olds are. It's all 17 year olds are, are vain. <laughs> yeah. That's how, that's how they do. Um, a bit of an extreme reaction, but it's a fairy tale. That's to be expected. Um, and the, the point is, I think, and I think this is what you're driving at is that he has to learn to look beyond somebody's appearance. So, um, he is then turned into a beast so that someone has to look beyond his, uh, appearance. The metaphors in beauty and the beast and the storytelling match up a lot better and like oh, you yeah. were saying with uh, Snow White they didn't really have a writer but Beauty and the Beast had a writer so Beauty and the Beast is the first uh, Disney film to have a screenwriter a listed yeah. screenwriter yeah, yeah 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 they started using a writer and suddenly the story makes sense suddenly the story makes <laughs> sense fancy that yeah so so yeah I feel like here we can like dive into this without doing injustice to the to the story yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Then, they focused on it because then you think through like so yeah the difference between the beast and gaston is that like gaston doesn't want to change like he just wants to domineer his will on everyone and when bell meets the beast he has a temper uh but he's also kind of reserved he's like 
he wants to change, but he's also like really impulsive. So it makes it difficult. Um, and so there's like this whole because, right, like you think through the story and it gets a lot of crap for the whole Stockholm syndrome thing and the whole like don't don't date a guy thinking that you can change him, which is all true. But still, <laughs> oh, my gosh, I can fix him. Right. But there's still elements of like the beast is trying to fix himself at the same time. Right. It's not He's working on himself. She's she's not like just blindly going to. Also, she doesn't have a choice in this story. Usually you have a choice. Don't date guys that aren't good for you. Let them figure themselves out on their own time. And then you have like a hundred wingmen trying to set them up, which is all the furniture. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The furniture. I like how everybody forgets that the uh, not just like we were talking about how unhinged it was that the witch like or the fairy or whoever she was, the magical being who cursed the beast probably overreacted because he was (laughs) a dumb kid. Yeah. who like said something that was mildly insulting. Maybe she was a 17 uh, year old. Uh, he, she sorceress. also cursed the entire servant staff of the castle. Yeah. <laughs> she took it out on everybody. Like, and the whole dang. castle. Cause I think at the end, the castle goes from like this dull stone to like a white marble. Like just everything is. <laughs> yeah. Up. Yeah. I think, I think this, this fairy, this magical being was maybe working out some trauma from somewhere else. On this well, I'm saying, if she's a 17 year old sorceress who doesn't have uh, emotional control over herself and then she feels slighted by the guy, the hot guy at the party, you know, this could actually make sense. This is just a teenage drama film. Yeah. 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 It's been um, it's been uh, what's that arch weird Archie reboot uh, Riverdale Rivers. Oh, God. yeah. Riverdale. <laughs> it's been Riverdale the whole time. Yeah. Oh, so. Quick backtrack to your point that the animation is a lot more polished. So, like I said, this is right before Pixar makes uh, Toy Story, uh, just a couple years later. But Pixar had already been developing their animation technology, their their computer animation and stuff like that. Um, and so, at this point, Pixar had developed uh, a device called Caps, Computer Animation Production System. Leave it to software engineers to come up with really catchy names. Um, but this basically, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's, it lets you do certain types of animation. It's still a mix of hand-drawn traditional animation and computer graphics, but it lets you do a lot more things, uh, with your camera movements, um, and stuff like that. So like that dance scene in the ballroom, uh, you can see the camera moving on like the Z axis. It's going, it's swooping, um, it's doing all of these moves that are really difficult to do when you're hand drawing stuff and you're like literally trying to construct a 3D space in your brain and figure out how it would move on paper. Um, so I think part of that and then also probably the the digitization had come a long way. And so I don't know that it's necessarily like vectorized, but there's probably some way of transferring it to the computer that's more polished and refined than just literally photographing every frame as you're doing it with like the traditional cell animation. So yeah, Disney's Disney's developed their story. They've developed their technology. Um, and so it, it really gives a much more cohesive feel to the films of this era. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's one of the fun parts about animation, right? Is being able to do all the wild stuff that's hard in live action and 
having computers mm-hmm. come in and being able to help you achieve that just makes it better. Which, um, uh, yeah, sometimes you need help because there are also um, the uh, the caveat stories of films like which I just I just found this this rabbit hole again. But you know the story of the uh, the thief and the cobbler. I've not heard of that. So this is an animated film that was being made around the same time by Richard Williams. Uh, and oh, no, sorry, this was earlier. I mean, it started in like the 60s, but went on for decades because basically Richard Williams had decided I've mastered the animation medium, so I'm going to make my masterpiece. I'm going to make the grandest animated film ever. And it was so complicated in the animations that they were trying to make. So it's basically it's it's more or less a version of Aladdin. You can find a lot of comparisons to it uh, to Aladdin online because the the art illustration and some of the story elements, it comes from uh, the thousand and one Arabian Nights and all that Mm. kind of stuff. But like he has these palace animations with these these designs that are almost like uh optical illusions or like MC Escher type things. And he's moving the camera around and it's all just like him drawing this stuff and getting other animators to draw this stuff and then burning out those animators <laughs> and having to, and eventually the film was never actually completed just cause it went so long. They burned through so many animators. They couldn't nail down the story. It was just too much. And so the point of all that being that like animation can do a lot, but it does have, a limit, especially when you're trying to do it within um, a certain kind of uh, structure and industry like the film industry. Uh, And so you can do anything you want in animation, but you still have to get it done and you have to do it within some budget. Uh, But to that end, computers help a lot because all animation is is repetitive tasks, right? You have your creativity at the beginning, where you know where you're going to where you're going to go with it, what the characters are going to do, and then you just have to draw them frame after frame after frame after frame. And computers are great at automating boring repetitive tasks. And so mm-hmm. this is the era where we figured that out and we started uh, taking advantage of that. Make the computers work for us. You know robot means slave. Oh my gosh. That's no, awesome. not that we already did that one too. We, we did, that, did one. that one. We did that one. Um, um hmm. I, I do wonder though, after Gaston falls to his death, was Jack Black at the bottom of the castle? Did he take his doff his hat <laughs> and say, Twas beauty that slayed the beast? Something like that. Although the yeah, Gaston's death is very reminiscent of the evil queen in in Snow White. They both like accidentally fall to their death. No one kills them. They're not put through any yeah. torture per se. You can't uh, uh, you can't have any blood on the hands of the uh, of the the protagonists. Yeah, in this era, unlike the upcoming movie where the protagonist definitely murdered like a lot of people. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, but or you could have see the thing to do is you have LeFou turn on him and stab him at the top of a tower and push him off. No, oh, gosh, that would have been very different. <laughs> no, just just Saruman. That's actually not how Saruman's supposed to die anyway. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, yeah we so we have almost this... diving into Lord of the Rings lore. I know. I mean, we're in fairy tale realm, which is is very close territory to Middle Earth. But yeah, we have that catastrophe. We have the the moment where Gaston falls at the same time 
the beast is dying and Belle comes and this time it's practically Belle's kiss, the the princess charming, so to speak, that lifts the curse on the beast. So there's kind of a reversal there, which is a little bit interesting. And uh, and then we see and this one we get a really grand you catastrophe, because like we said, everything has been turned wrong for the beast, like his whole his whole castle, his servants, everything is not the way it's supposed to be. And so at the end of this film, we get a really grand gesture of everything being righted. We see all the servants turn to their right forms. We see the castle glowing, the skies even open. It's not dark and cloudy anymore. Um, and then the beast becomes the beautiful prince that he's supposed to be. And uh, they get to live happily ever after. Um, so this one really kind of like hammers home that you catastrophe element uh, and does a good job because we've spent so much time inside the castle seeing things the way that they're not supposed to be and rooting for Belle and the Beast and then mm. we get to see all of that change in one big grand yes. motion. And not only do we see it change in one big grand gesture, we see it change in a very um, uh, on-brand Disney way with the yeah. swooping sparkling magic going over a castle, which is literally their logo, I'll, I'll yep. remind you. Um, as everything turns back to bright and wishes do come true. Um, and then, yeah, Belle gets, Belle gets to live in the, in the big city and, uh, she gets out of her provincial life. Yeah. She finally gets to go live in uh, the big castle and have Although, servants, which is obviously the dream to be super mega rich <laughs> and pretty and have a bunch of people work for you and uh, wait on your every whim. But now so, you just have to put an <laughs> echo in every room of your house. Yes. Yep. 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 It's you will have weird echoes. Thing. Welcome to living in a big stone castle. <laughs> um, you know, we don't get a uh, we don't get a final ending for that uh, impulsive witch that turned him into a beast in the first place. So who knows what happened to her? Yeah, she just kind of was there to kick off the plot and left. That happens a lot. That's kind of like the, the whole impetus of fairies and fairy tales is just to start shit and leave. <laughs> yeah basically they just they just rile people up in the waffle house enough to start throwing <laughs> chairs and then they slip out the back door that's like their whole mo oh my gosh where's our waffle house uh princess disney come on i don't know how you would do that but if you could pull it off i'd, I'd be there for that i'd love to see a short i will say disney and pixar shorts get super duper inventive because they're small format and they're not expected oh, yeah. to turn a profit um, also, so they're up-and-coming talent, so it's people yeah. with new ideas, it's people who are experimenting with things that, uh, you know, wouldn't fly for a full feature length. Like the one, the uh, the day and night one is so good mm -hmm. because of the, that silhouette thing. Like, you can't carry a whole film with that silhouette gag, but it's a really cool thing. It works perfectly in a short format. Um, and that's where, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, that's kind of where Disney had its roots. Um, and even Snow uh -huh. White is kind of more of a combining of a series of shorts than it is a, a full feature film. So I feel like that's that's the area where, where Disney animators, when they get the chance to play around, really play around. Um, yeah. But it does seem like, and, and Beauty and the Beast is a really good example, the whole Disney renaissance of a whole is like, wow, Disney really found this this formula that works and kind of saved the company, and they haven't wanted to go away from that really since. Yeah. 
there was a stretch there where they didn't do musicals so much, but they, after with Tangled and Frozen, they really got back into musicals. And I think they've done some more since. I have not really stayed super duper up to date on it. And the line between Disney films and Pixar films have, has blurred even more. So I don't feel super confident talking about which is which anymore. Yeah. And now it's just like they have, they have lined ups of all the remakes Anyway, oh, we'll yeah, get into the some of that stuff. Yep. Yeah, we'll get into that in the overall notes. But for now, let's move on into the modern or what I'll call pre-modern Disney with Frozen from 2013. Jason, set it up. Frozen from 2013. In the kingdom of Arendelle, there were two princesses, Elsa and Anna. One day when they were little, Elsa accidentally struck her sister with her magic ability to control snow and ice. The king and queen were able to heal Anna by the help of some trolls, but in their fear, they erased Anna's memory of the event and instructed Elsa to stay in her room away from Anna and to learn to contain her powers and never use them again. But on Elsa's coronation day, an argument between the sisters, now orphaned, reveals Elsa's powers to the whole kingdom and neighboring kingdoms. Elsa runs away and constructs an ice castle for herself on a nearby mountain, but unknowingly leaves Arendelle covered in an unseasonable snow. Now Anna must find Elsa, with the help of a solitary ice merchant named Kristoff and his reindeer Sven, to save the kingdom and restore her bond with her estranged sister. Okay, I'm going to touch on the differences from the original story later on, but this is very, very loosely based on the Snow Queen by... uh, um, Hans Christian Andersen. Um, and I will say like Beauty and the Beast is pretty close to the original story. There's some things like Beauty or Belle had um, several brothers and sisters and when she's gone they start getting married and the Beast lets her go back and uh, and go to their weddings but he gives her like two months to come back and then all her sisters are jealous because she's been living in a castle and yada yada. Um, so you have kind of the evil stepsister thing, although they're real sisters. Um, And then they trick her into staying longer away from the beast. And then she has this dream that he's dying and she rushes back and, and saves him or whatever. And then she realizes that she loves him. Uh, So uh, it's, it's pretty similar. Frozen is very different from the original story, but it also went through an extraordinary development hell. So Disney, Walt Disney himself had, been in talks just before World War II with uh, Samuel Goldwyn about making a film about Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales. Uh, And uh, Goldwyn of MGM would, although I don't know that MGM had actually been formed at that point, but their studio would create the live action sequences that would go through Hans Christian Andersen's life. And then Disney would animate the fairy tales seems like a good compromise so i think little mermaid was in that lineup snow queen was in that lineup uh but it didn't end up happening and world war ii happened everyone got busy uh and then at some point um mgm just made their own hans christian anderson movie with uh danny k and they did for the fairy tales they did it as like ballet musical numbers sequences instead of animated sequences so Anyway, the Snow Queen had started being developed. There's some sketches, some early sketches of, uh, um, you know, just pieces of art and stuff like that. Uh, And then during the Disney Renaissance, there were like, you know, Disney's doing great. They're making all these fairy tale films. And so a bunch of the directors at Disney keep coming up with like 
They're they're reviving the Snow Queen story. They're pitching it. It's getting shot down. Someone else will pick it up. They're like, here, how about we do it this way? That gets shot down. So like three or four teams of directors tried to uh, revive the story, kept getting shot down until they just put it on the shelf again. Later, John Lasseter returns uh, after they merge with Pixar and John Lasseter is talking through some of the Disney people, uh, talking to some of the Disney people about new stories that they could do. Snow Queen comes up again and they start working on it. They get some people uh, attached to it, um, but it just they can't quite nail it down. Um, and then finally they make Tangled. Tangled does really well and they put a date on on uh, the Snow Queen, which they've renamed Frozen. And uh, so then I think. It's it's kind of muddy, but really I think basically titles. Yeah, I know. I think they just put like a deadline on themselves and they were like, well, we told people we're going to make this movie, so we got to figure it out now. So then the story has a whole lot of like back and forth on how they ended up uh, getting to where they're at. Uh, so anyway, all that to say the, <laughs> the story is not perfect, but it it took a long time even to get to what they landed on. Um, and, uh, I think part of the really interesting thing is going to be looking at the, the story for its flaws and also compared to how insanely successful the film ended up being like probably beyond anyone was expecting from this movie, man, frozen merge still hasn't left. <laughs> it's still yeah. everywhere. It's everywhere. Every, I, I dare you. I bet if you still go into any Walmart up in, Today, you could find a piece of Frozen merch. Easily. Every every little girl who was three to eight years old in 2013 is still remembers their let it go phase. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, I will say, yeah, I, I struggle with this story because there are some elements of it that are really, really good. And there are some elements of it that are just so glaringly uh, missing that it's it's really hard to come to terms with because we have like so many plot holes, right? The fir- the whole first part of the movie is like Elsa hurts Anna and then they're just like shut down everything, hide all your powers, stay it's a in pretty your room. extreme reaction. <laughs> and then they die and there's like 3 years later no one did anything. Well, not and it's like 10 years later because we have a song that goes through like 10 years. And then, yeah, whatever, wherever the song ends, then it says like three years later or whatever. And there's like they have a few servants because the the king and queen are like, we're going to we're going to reduce our staff. We're going to keep everyone away. We're yeah, not going to let them out. There should and be then, some stewardship going on. They're still kids when their parents die. Like, yeah. So then there's like four four staff and the two little girls locked up in the castle and <laughs> There's just no attempt to uh, explain any of that, which is frustrating. But if you take for granted what they want you to take for granted, it kind of works. But they ask you to take a lot for granted. This is true. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm torn because I like a lot of Frozen, but also at the same time, I feel like the parts that I hear people talk about um, with Frozen the most in, in pop culture are the parts that I don't necessarily enjoy the most. Um, For example. But it's, 
Well, Olaf is a great example. I find Olaf him is incredibly, incredibly irritating. Uh, Apparently, he was originally going to be um, Elsa's like snarky sidekick. Like, I think he was going to be a LaFu kind of character. Ironic because Josh Gad played LaFu in the live action of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, exactly. So he was, he was apparently, there was a mean Olaf at some point, which actually reminds me of the way they talk about mean the, Woody. Mean Woody. Yeah. Uh, so this, this Olaf was a compromise on that, which may or may not have been a good, but I will say there's a, there is a broad sliding scale of Disney sidekick characters and Olaf is somewhere in the middle between like actually good sidekick characters like, uh, um, Lumiere that we just saw in the beauty and the beast all the way to the deranged chicken from Moana. I think that's probably at the bottom. So, you know, there's, there's a big range there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that they stepped away from it's in a lot of ways. It's very clearly like a story about two sisters, but also at the same time, there's a lot of other characters who get weirdly a large amount of screen time. Mm -hmm. Um, like Elsa's an interesting character, but I almost feel like she doesn't get enough screen time. Um, yeah. I think I, I like Kristoff. Like, I think he's a cool character and I get why they had him there as kind of like uh, a prince in a support role rather than a save the day role. But also, you know, at the end of the day, he does just kind of become extraneous to the plot. It takes up time. Um, I, I don't think so, because I think he serves an important role in what ends up being the focus of this film, much in the way that like the dwarves were the point of making Snow White. This film was made to subvert the Prince Charming role. And I think Hans and Kristoff, which, by the way, Hans, Kristoff, Anna, Sven, those are all names of characters in this film based on a Hans Christian Andersen story. Just throwing that out there. Um but Kristoff and Hans are there to set audience expectations, which are then really strongly subverted. Um, and I think that that subversion of the Prince Charming story kind of needs both of them. And I think that they both play an important part in the audience's experience of the final you catastrophe of this film. Mm, yeah, I can see that. I could see that. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like this is maybe the point where the uh, the plot and the character development start to uh, be strangled a little bit by the amount of uh, singing going on, if that makes sense. There's also a lot more action in this film. I just thought of that too. Like yeah. they hit you with the action scenes very early on. A lot of the action scenes in like Beauty and the Beast are backloaded towards mm -hmm. the, the third act. Um well, there's but an there's interesting thing, too, that the the music in this film is not fully fleshed out. Um, so I, I'm going to throw this question out. Do you know what the last song, the last musical number in the film is? I have no idea, man. It's Fixer Upper. Is it really? Which is a such a weird way to end the music. So Beauty and the Beast, on the other hand, Kill the Beast is the last song which is a great final song because it's the whole climax and it's such an intense moment. And then right after that, we get the, the you catastrophe and the, the resolution, but this film ends with 
fixer upper. And then, so then at that point, Anna's heart has been frozen. And so they have to rush her to the town, but there's no kill the beast song. There's no song. There's no like reprise for Hans when he turns out to be a traitor. There's no, uh, final song. Like even Tangled doesn't really have a good ending song either, but it at least has a reprise of that, um, of that flower song that, that, Mm -hmm. uh, when she cries on him. Um, but yeah, this one is just like, it's like they halfway finished the musical part. And so, cause in, I think we've talked about this before too, but in good musicals, the music is kind of works in conjunction to move the story along. So this one has like some of these songs that are kind of diversions. So like Olaf's song is almost entirely irrelevant. I mean, I think Olaf plays an interesting thematic role too, but his song is really long and it's just like a silly song for kids to laugh at a naive snowman, I guess. But but anyway, yeah, so the, the music is also a really interestingly frustrating element of this movie. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it is kind of weird. The uh, the the musical just gives up the ghost partway through, because <laughs> Fixer Upper is not that late in the movie. Yeah, like I said, it's it's right before they rush back to town and they they try to get her back to Hans because the trolls tell them that like an act of true love is the only thing that can thaw her heart or whatever. So they rush back and then Hans betrays them. And but there's a lot that happens after that, right? Because Hans then. Then we get the plot twist of Hans, uh, and then uh, we have the whole thing where Elsa has to break out, and then Anna has to go save Elsa. Like the whole, there's a lot that happens there, and there's room for another song, but they just didn't, they just didn't do it. So I will say the first song is one that I think is super interesting because it is a really, really thematic song, but I don't know that they delivered fully on some of the themes in that song. So. If you remember at the very beginning, we have the ice cutters and they're singing this song. Yeah. The, and they, the, the whole song is about this, this dichotomy of the ice being beautiful and dangerous. Um, and it's, it's something that's worth, worth extracting. So they're like cutting out the frozen heart. Right. But it's also their livelihood and it's also, something that they they see as beautiful, but they're also a little bit scared of it. And so it's all of these themes that kind of go into Elsa's character, which is that she has these powers um, and she doesn't know how to control them. But the fear overtakes her um, appreciation of the powers, because ultimately she, she has to learn how to not completely suppress her powers, but only use them in a positive way. Right. Yeah. Uh, Frozone can do it. She can do it. <laughs> right. And she she has very Frozone Frozone moments. Like there um, there is there is very clearly like a happy middle ground that is achievable, but also like the story is kind of about uh, about like swinging between wild extremes. Yeah. Um, of like self persecution and then exploding and freezing the whole kingdom, which I have to imagine killed some people. Like it has they were not be. prepared for that. Actually, I think that might be part of the plot of the second one is that when she froze the kingdom, she did damage to to other places. But I don't know. Oh, no. The the incredibilization of Frozen. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no. I mean, that theme is really interesting. It's not explored a whole lot outside of the song Let It Go. 
um, which is kind of uh, Elsa at the other extreme where you she suppressed all of this for so long that it just flows out all at once. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because it's another extreme that's often feels like the point that's celebrated in the movie, but neither like freezing the whole kingdom isn't a good thing and leaving the kingdom in a perpetual winter isn't a good thing. And right. Elsa extreme experiencing that extreme amount of emotion all at once probably isn't emotionally healthy either. So it's weird that it's left there and there isn't like a later song or idea about Elsa finding a happy medium balance between the two. Um, like it feels like her, well, I mean, she her, does find she gets that balance. physically saved at the end of the movie. Um, and she has the, the love of her sister again, but it doesn't feel like she grew or changed as a person. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the rush part of, of this film is like right after Anna saves her. And then, um, so yeah, this, this is what, what the film does really well is I think that 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 turning of the the traditional fairy tale on its head is done is done really well in this film because it's not so like girl bossy like they're trying to do with a lot of the more modern stuff but it's it's still this act of true love but it's turned from romantic love to familial love right the love of a sister for a sister she sacrifices herself to save her sister and then her own act of true love for her sister is what melts her own heart so it's not even someone else necessarily lifting the curse from her. Um, but then that at that thawing of Anna gives Elsa the key to kind of because it's kind of implied that Elsa, like all the, the talk of frozen hearts is always kind of implying Elsa Although they don't really say that her heart is frozen, but she's just very cold because she shut the world out. Yeah, she shut um, the she froze herself. Yeah, and then she learns that love is the key, and so she. I hate the line. She's like, "Oh, love thaws," and then she just looks up, and everything thaws. Um, but that's kind of the 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 Yukatashri moment where everything thaws, everything goes back to the way it's supposed to be, and then she has she has the little scene at the end where she like uses her powers to create the ice rink. Like she's learned the right place of of love and like sh you kind of get this sense that she knows how to have a respectful fear of her powers without completely containing them um, and she can let them out in positive outlets. And then the the prince doesn't fall to his death in this one. Hans just gets arrested, which is a little less satisfying, but still works, I guess. Yeah, they don't <laughs> even kill their antagonist anymore. I know they they should have thawed and let him just sink into the ocean. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I think the um, I, the the story like the themes they're approaching in Frozen are are good and interesting themes. I feel like maybe they got too distracted by the plot and the action to really deliver on the themes as adequately as they could have. If that makes sense. Yeah, because there's there is a lot of depth there and they touch a lot of the surface. But and and I feel like this might be an element, too, because now Disney is like. Disney fairy tales are for kids, quote unquote. Right. And so mm -hmm. I feel like Olaf is made for kids. Keep yes. Kids attention. <laughs> right. It's a silly snowman there to keep kids attention. They have the princesses to look up to that they want to be. They have the little snowman to laugh at. They have the the reindeer and stuff. And so it's like 
It's like there's they spend a lot of time making sure that they're maintaining children's attention and not diving into the themes, which I can't really blame them for. But like if you really want your films to persist and and have that, uh, there's there's a way that Flannery O'Connor talks about art. The goal of the artist is to make their piece good for its own sake, like good on its own. And so when you have other objectives like satisfying a market and stuff like that, which are things that you have to consider, but when it detracts from the internal goodness of the piece that you're making, uh, it, it kind of just brings the whole thing down a notch. Yeah. 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 No, I feel like, yeah, I feel like this, this thing is, uh, frozen is stretched between what it wants to be. Um, and the most successful parts of it, I think were very clearly the most merchandisable parts of it. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a bummer because a lot of other parts of it were either really good or promised to be really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, immediately after I watched it, I was like, that was a very interesting take on a Disney movie. But as it sat with me for longer, um, I, I think that, that kind of started to fade a little bit and especially on the rewatch too. When, once you already know some of the twists, you're like, Mm -hmm. okay, the biggest twist in this movie is that the act of the true love isn't, you know, some random dude kissing you, which admittedly is weird. It's, um, it's sisterly on that. They play on that meta element with the, with the first, the first love story with Hans, where it's like, Mm -hmm. you just promised to marry a guy you just met that day, which is totally, you know, Disney looking back at every film they've yeah, ever made. Disney making fun of Disney. <laughs> Which is and actually going, a good Aren't we a relatable youths? <laughs> yeah. But, I okay, I want to say one thing in praise of the Olaf character. Not necessarily the way that he was executed, but just thematically, I, I like him being there as... Because he's, he's willing to sacrifice himself for love, right? He has that silly scene where he comes in and he says, you know, some people are worth melting for. Um, in a really like naive way when he's sitting by the fire, but it's still like he is the foil of, you know, do do you hold back and you protect yourself in order to not be hurt or hurt others, or do you let yourself have the potential of being hurt uh, for the sake of love, which is kind of where they get to. Um, so Olaf does have have a little bit of that thematic punch there. It's just the rest of his character is so doggone silly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, he's one of the scariest parts of the movie if you think about the fact that, I know this has been memed to death, uh, but the fact that Anna can just create life on a whim. Elsa, yeah. And end it on a whim, like, utterly terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, because then then she makes the big snow monster, too. Yeah, yeah, she She does. doesn't even think about it. She's like, here, here's another creature that, you know... There's no yeah. no books about creating life that's ever gone wrong. Yeah, we went we went full on D and D rules for a second in this movie. It was wild. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, okay, so I want to bring up a part about this movie that I that will kind of transition us into overall notes. So taking a step back and looking at the original story, the Snow Queen, is kind of interesting because I I don't want it to like influence the way you look at frozen because frozen's totally its own thing now but the fact that it's influenced by the snow queen is really interesting and it's it's something that's going to tie a little bit all three of these films together because there's an element of a magic mirror in the original story 
And then I realized that if you look at that as part of the influence of the film, there's kind of a magic mirror element in all three of them. Uh, right. Cause Belle has the mirror that lets her see her father or the beast or whatever she wants. And then obviously the, the evil queen's magic mirror in snow white, but in the snow queen, which is broken up into a couple of different stories. And the first part of the story is this, uh, the king of the sprites or something. He's basically a goblin and he creates this mirror that everything in it that's beautiful is turned ugly and everything that's ugly is even uglier. So everything just looks really ugly in this mirror. And then all the little goblins, they think that this is so funny. They go around shining the mirror on everything and looking at how ugly everything is. And eventually they take it way up into the atmosphere so they could see the whole earth through it. And they take it up and up and up and then they drop it and it crashes down to earth and shatters into a thousand little dust particles. And some people get particles of this mirror in their eye or in their heart, and it makes them see the world um, as this ugly, nasty place, and it makes them feel ugly, nasty things. Um, and then the rest of the story is about this little boy and little girl who grow up together, and uh, the little boy ends up getting a piece of the mirror in his eye and in his heart. Um, and then he's he's kind of lured to the Snow Queen's castle, kind of in a way that like um, it's very reminiscent of Edmund in Chronicles of Narnia and the uh, the White Witch, uh, just as a very relatable thing to to come back to. So he gets lured away and then the little girl has to kind of go after him and and find him. And eventually she does after she goes through a lot of interesting adventures that are very irrelevant to the frozen story. Uh, but then she finds him and he's like, he's becoming like, he, he's being almost completely frozen because the ice, the ice queen keeps, uh, just keeps him cold, but keeps him impervious to the sensation of cold. And then she cries on him and it like releases the, the piece of glass. And then he cries and it releases the piece of glass from his eye. But I think that that's really interesting because there's, there's little hints of that throughout, right? Because you have, uh, Elsa as again, being described as the frozen heart, we have her hurting, um, on a, on his head, first of all, which is kind of like the eye and then hurting her heart. And that's the most dangerous one. Um, and so it's, you can see those little elements from the story that are really interesting. Cause I think that that element of the magic mirror that turns everything ugly is a super interesting element, but then kind of take it on its own track, which is a which is a pretty good way of adapting fairy tales. And it's kind of a way that fairy tales have always been adapted, where you take the elements that interest you the most and then you take those themes and those elements, because again, fairy tales are so archetypal that they're usually an amalgam of these really archetypal boiled down elements that you can then take pieces of and expand them later on. Uh, and so that's one way of seeing Frozen through that kind of adaptive lens of fairy tales yeah yeah it's it's uh come quite away from the original tale it sounds like yeah there's a whole thing about this like this little like wild uh uh robber girl that she teams up with and then she gets the robber girl's uh uh reindeer and the reindeer takes her to there's like two good witches in the story there's like a lot of it's a really interesting story. There's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot. Yeah. So definitely go check it out if you get a chance. But it's interesting just to tie that element of the magic mirror from all three of these stories 
um, which is kind of it's kind of still in the background of Frozen, just not explicitly like that. Because the other thing is Elsa's powers are never explained, like not even a little bit. They're just like she was born with these powers. Hope it wasn't our fault. Like, what's the deal with her parents? No one knows. No one knows. It's just it's just weird. They did not handle that well, decidedly. No, All right, here's not. a question for you. It's more right. about visual style. At what point do you think, and maybe at no point at all, did the look of Disney movies and Pixar movies just become almost the same thing? Or, or do you think they're separate? Because Frozen is a movie that, uh, while distinct from a lot of Pixar movies, also looks like a lot of Pixar movies. Yeah, I think I think it's it's been a progression on both sides of the look of things like because if you go back, like anyone who's studied animation, you remember the the books of character shapes. You know, you have like triangle characters, you have square characters, you have round characters, and you mix all of these really basic shape elements to build your characters. So like all the dwarves kind of have these triangle heads where their cheeks are really big, but they're kind of, and then they have their pointy hats and they all have the very round bodies and stuff like that. Um, and I feel like the, the more we try to get to like, we soften out those animation edges, right? Even if you just look back at things like Shrek, Shrek still had a lot of those shape elements in the character designs. Um, but they're they're all kind of being smoothed out, not quite to realism, sometimes to realism, but just a little bit closer with like every movie that comes out. And so they're less. I don't know, they feel less distinct because when you do those really um, basic shape builds of characters, which is not something that is a natural starting point for commu computer animation. Uh, right, because you you're doing models and stuff, and so you're kind of starting with those shapes, and then you're just molding them and trimming them down, and kind of sculpting them into whatever you want them to look like. But when you're drawing, you literally start with a square, and then you draw around the square, and you're building off of a square rather than trimming down a square to something that you want. And so, I I think it's just like a progression due to both the technology and the uh, aesthetic sensibilities of the time that's just kind of bringing everything into this muddy middle ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes things less distinct, which I guess is, which it makes it easier from, I, I guess, mean, a marketing, branding, and a merchandising perspective. Another good um, example is The Incredibles. Like, you look at the the shape of Mr. Incredible, he's like a big triangle. And... uh then let's see who what would be a modern but like all the modern characters they just look like people right they're, they're not yeah. that distinct in their in their shapes and that's kind of the point yeah 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 it becomes less they become more interchangeable uh which is i don't know it's not objectively bad but it's it's disappointing i would say it feels like the and then you get facial expressions and and faces that kind of they work because they're cute like i feel like they did they they got this look for the characters in Frozen that really worked. And then they just kind of like recycle. It's almost the way that Disney would literally recycle their motions and animations from older films to kind of expedite the process. And so I don't know if it's a matter of like starting with something that works and then only tweaking it slightly for each each film. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely kind of a homogenization going on. 
Well, do you want to go to overall notes? Yeah. So, yeah. So let's just take the the Yucatastrophe idea across across the board um, because it's an element that is, like I mentioned last time, it's kind of the pinnacle of fairy tale stories. That the happy happily ever after, at least the way that Tolkien viewed fairy tale stories, is you go through a lot of darkness and then you get that relief of things being put right, the happily ever after or the the happy ending. And it's an element that is kind of emphasized in fairy tale stories because there's a lot of magical elements that can bring you to really dark places. There's a lot of other elements that go into making it work really well for fairy tales, but it's not it's not restricted to fairy tales, right? There are, there are a lot of examples of you catastrophe in kind of, you know, more normal storytelling. You think of, I just was trying to think through a couple of examples. So like back to the future has a you catastrophe when he comes back home and his family is, uh, different in the way that he wants them to be now. Um, the Shawshank redemption has a you catastrophe moment. Um, home alone has a you catastrophe moment when his family comes back. Uh, even the film that we looked at, I was just scrolling through all the films that we covered and Arctic kind of has that Yucatastrophe moment for like one second. But it, we talked about how it gives you that relief that like, oh, they're going to be OK. Um, and this shows up a lot in romance films. So like Pride and Prejudice, Shop Around the Corner has the Yucatastrophe when she figures out that he's the guy uh, or for you modern people, uh, you've got mail, whatever. Um, the apartment even has the Yucatastrophe moment where she runs back to him. So there's there's this element that really um, is a draw for a lot of different types of films. And you, sometimes we call them feel good movies, but sometimes they're not feel good movies because, again, the Yucatastrophe, the strength of the Yucatastrophe rides on the 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 darkness and the journey that it's taken to get there. Right. And so for films like Shawshank Redemption, you don't call that a feel-good movie, but it has a really strong eucatastrophe at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go as dark as you want in a fairy tale as long as you bring it back around somehow, and it's morally justifiable. Because I guess, <laughs> or at least at literarily heart, justifiable. In a lot of ways, uh, a lot of fairy tales have sort of that origin of like teaching about morals and behavior, um, how to treat people, how not to treat people, or or illustrating things like. Uh, like growing up or puberty, like we were kind of alluding to with Snow White. Like, it's not fun, but there's there's a light at the end of the tum- tunnel. Or the all-important lesson of don't go into the woods. <laughs> right, exactly. Don't do it. You wonder why everyone moved to the uh, city uh, after hearing all these stories about how terrible the woods are. Um, yeah, and then I was trying to think, too, because sometimes I, I feel like it doesn't have to be tied to it, but you could almost argue that the U catastrophe is a deus ex machina, but I think that it's like a deus ex machina can be a shortcut to a U catastrophe. But I think in the same way that, you know, that we talk about a lot of different storytelling elements, you have to earn it, right? Like if you really earn it, it's not a cop out. It's, it's a natural and kind of fitting conclusion to the story that you've built right yeah yeah that makes sense so again to go back to to things like back to the future or shawshank or whatever or home alone like it's not a cop-out that his family came back 
but it's still this relieving moment that you get after you've been through all the things that he's been through for the rest of the film. Yeah. We know, we know how stories are supposed to work traditionally. They're mm-hmm. supposed to be a happy ending of some sort, either comeuppance or a catastrophe, depending on your protagonist. Yeah. But then we have, you know, the element of Disney taking stories and smoothing out the edges of the story before they even get to the screen. And then Disney becomes the main version of the story that people know. Then we get this. And again, like I said, there's this has kind of been a debate from the beginning of writing down fairy tales, even with the Brothers Grimm. But Disney continues this tradition of like taking fairy tales and making them very, very, very kid friendly and making them, you know, roughing out all the edges. So even in like Snow White, you have the scenes of the evil witch and she's like got these potions and she's got this apple that's, you know, she drips the potion on it and it turns into a skull and she's going to go like kill Snow White or whatever, um, whatever curse that the apple's going to put on her. Uh, and thinking through Frozen, there's not that much of like a big evil thing. So you have, you have Hans's betrayal, which is its own kind of a, of an evil, but there's not this really dark moment uh, within the film, which, you know, works for the story, but there's still like this less lessening of the really ugly parts of the fairy tales that really help emphasize the, the happy ending. Yeah. I mean, the more, the more I think about it, the more the plot of frozen is very exciting, but not, pieced together as well as it could have been. Yeah, it's uh, just it's got so much potential like, but so many it's like holes. Few, it's it's like a, a series of revisions away. Like it feels like yeah. it's not Which is done, ironic since it's but, been in and, development for 50 years. It, I was about to say maybe yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of the reason why and how it's drifted so far to become so much its own thing. It's like loosely based on the Snow Queen. Very, um, very, but not really truly an adaptation, like just based on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, yeah. I think it says inspired by in the credits. Yeah, inspired by is a is a good good way to put it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too that even Disney is even reacting to this this kind of veneer that they've themselves put on fairy tales by doing the uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the series, but doing the twist where. The, the bad guys misunderstood. And so we have to do this whole story about how mis, mistreated the bad guy was, which justifies their evilness somehow or other. Um, and so like Disney has created this whole like version of what a story t- or what a fairy tale is. And then they they're now adapting it themselves and they're toying with it and they're adjusting the formula and they're doing all that kind of stuff. Um, which is and or ugh, Disney's just doing everything. They're they're like undermining their original stories and then they're just remaking them. They're just taking it and they're like, ah, it worked a hundred years ago. Let's just make it again. Yeah, they're not really working on many new projects. Like occasionally something comes out that's new, but a lot of money's just going into the stuff that's already worked. I just keep running across on IMDb like the 
you know, the posters that are just black with like the the name of a movie that they've slated for five years out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just all the same. There, There are some new ones that they're coming up with because they're they're really putting a lot of time into trying to represent a lot of different cultures. So every culture gets their Disney movie that's coming out. But then other than that, it's just like like they're making Snow White this year or next year. And so we're going to get another Snow White. Uh, they've already remade Beauty and the Beast. They're someone. Uh, what did I see? Like they're they're going to remake the films that like everyone who was involved in making them is still alive. Like they're going to do a live action Tangled like Tangled just came out. Yeah, Tangled's uh, not that old. They just need something on the slate and they don't they're too scared to greenlight anything else because the box office is not very strong these days. Yeah. And and the thing is like they're trying to it it's all which is the whole trend of Hollywood right now, which is just ride on IP that has recog- like brand recognition. And mm-hmm. so we make Snow White not because we have we're we're interested in Snow White or Snow White needed to be remade, but because people know Snow White and they're going to be interested in what Disney is going to do with Snow White. And then but then they're also undermining their own stories. And so if you're going to make a new version of a story with a new theme, with new plot devices and characters, just make a new story. Just give it a new title, cowards. (laughs) Yeah, but then their, their Q4 profits might not be as high as they want them to be. I think, I think a lot be of it fine. too is is just the the idea that, and you know, Barbenheimer was great. People were talking about how it's bringing the American box office back. I don't know if it really brought it back. I think, I think the the four wall theater experience will still be around um, for as long as civilization is around in some capacity. Uh, but I think it'll become more and more of a niche experience just for people who really enjoy that particular way of viewing movies. Um, but I don't think that film films just don't seem to be the money grabs that they used to be. Um, and it's going to get, it's going to get weirder. <laughs> it's going to yeah. get even weirder. And I think We've the way that Disney's mired down the star into, um, and stuff like that. Yeah. I think as Disney's mired down more into a, remakes that's that's part of what's driving it is that um they are just they're just treading water essentially on uh, what the um their, their previous box office success is to get as much out of the box office as they still can they feel as though they still need to release movies um and they're not confident enough to release anything new so they're just going to release retreads until they can figure out where they're going to go from there yeah Anyway, we've lamented this point before, uh, so we'll try not to waste too much time on it. But I think it's been a very interesting look at, you know, the way that Disney has kind of evolved their thinking on on fairy tales and how Disney has been the voice of fairy tales, at least in America and in Hollywood, which is to say basically the major voice in the film adaptations of these types of uh, fairy tales or Kino Marchen, as I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to make it a thing, mm-hmm. but they are not the only voice, Alex. There are other people who have made fairy tales and they're not always Disneyfied. And so the next episode that we're doing is going to be the counterpoint. Fairy tales are not for kids because they often have very dark, dark, 
non-kid-friendly elements. Uh, and so what are those films that we're going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast from 1946. Is that the John Cockatoo one? That is. Cockatoo. I've seen that one before. It's really good. Um, it's black and white. It's it's very much a mid-century French film. So if you're going to watch it, brace yourself for that. But it is fascinating if you like movies. Um, Ugetsu uh, from 1956, which is a, a Japanese film that I've also seen. is also really good. Um, highly recommend. And Donkey Skin from 1970, which I've not seen. Is that American or is that an Italian film? I can't remember. Jacques Demy. Is it French? It's French. It's a oh. guy who did Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Yep, 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 yep. It is a uh, live action musical. Agnes Varda, yeah, Agnes Varda's husband. Yeah, exactly. Um, that one's going to be interesting. And, ah, man, I keep going back and forth on including... Uh, a film called Tale of Tales from 2014-2013. Uh, I just watched it the other day because I knew it was going to be related. It's by Matteo Garone, who's the director of the live-action Pinocchio we did last time. But it's based on four fairy tales from the Pentamorone, which is a, of a book of fairy tales from Italy that I think predates Grimm. Um, but those tales, that movie is really messed up. So... I'm going to I'm going to put it in there as an honorable mention, but we're not actually going to cover that that movie. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 471 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us at the Filmlinks. Summaries for this week's episode were recorded by me, Blue Jay. You can discover everything that I do at thebluejayproject.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. I need to know how to say this word. I'm sorry. What is that? Bowdlerized. So we can talk about this, but it okay. comes from Thomas Bowdler. Gotcha. That's a name. Okay. Mm-hmm. A Bowdler, a Bowdlerized, Bowdler, Bowdlerized, Bowdlerized, a Bowdlerized podcast where we analyze all the goes into effective filmmaking. Sorry. Give it one more go. A Bowdlerized podcast where we analyze all the goes into effective filmmaking. There you go.